0: finishing up let's uh let's pray one more time as we go into the word of god father we pray that during this time you would remind us that your word is our two-edged sword that it is powerful and it is authoritative to change our lives lord i pray that you would draw people into your kingdom as i open my mouth lord let the words be from scripture alone and we know that the Scripture is what is efficacious to save. I pray that if anyone here is not yet a believer, if they're examining their hearts, even this morning during the offertory, as we silently are giving as worship to you, I pray that perhaps those who have thought they were worshipers and find themselves not to truly be converted would say to you now that you are the only way to heaven, you are the living Savior transform us through the scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning, I'm going to do a part two from last week where we opened up the triumphal entry of Christ. Jesus had done three years of missionary work, preaching work, baptizing, healing, raising people from the dead, multiplying food, miracles teaching and showing himself as the king, as the Lord, bringing heaven down to earth for three years. And now it was time for him to transition from a mission of Jericho to Jerusalem, where now he's ready to go into the Passion Week and approach Jerusalem. And we talked about that triumphal approach that leads to the triumphal entry of Christ last week. During that triumphal approach... As the people and the masses gather around Christ and roll out the red carpet, per se, there are two kinds of worshipers that are on display from the gospel text of Scripture. Four different times the story is told. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this account to show the seriousness of the event. Jesus is moving from being private in his ministry, doing things more in a hushed way to maximize the opportunity for faith to happen in the hearts of the people. But now his ministry is on public display and there is a dividing line that takes place in the hearts of the people. Some are truly Christ's disciples. They're truly followers of Christ, so they are confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of David, the Son of God, God, very God, and the Savior. But the masses, by contrast, as the text of Scripture explains, are by and large more superficial in their praise. They're just crying out because they think it's the right thing to do. They're just joining in to the crowd because it's Passover season. And here's the Messiah. Here's the one who's been the miracle worker. Perhaps he's the one who we can cry out to to save us from the tyranny of Rome. Remember, the Roman government had been very oppressive in Jerusalem. The Israelites were not in control of their own city. The governing authority was Rome, and they were oppressive, and they were abusive, and they wanted deliverance now, now. Their way, their timetable. They were entitled and they wanted Jesus to rescue them their way at their moment. And so they're trying to hype this event up. And that's kind of the mixed emotions of this story. There were a lot of emotions as we observed many baptisms this morning. That was exciting. That was refreshing. It was confirming to us in regards to the mission of the gospel and God's saving grace in the lives of children and in the lives of adults and young adults, those baptisms represent for me and for all of us some of the most important words that are spoken here on earth. Just think about it. These were public confessions regarding people's individual souls. They were public professions about God who is eternal and about the state of their souls and the state of their eternal destinies. These were the most important kinds of confessions. I mean, there are a lot of different times that we remember in our lives, you know, about 20 or 30 things happened to us that we have emblazoned and etched into our souls. This is one of them. This is, I think, one of the most significant, if not the most significant, confession someone can make. We get married, we make a confession, we make, we make a commitment to our spouse publicly, that's memorable. We perhaps are taking a sworn oath in court one day, putting our right hand on a Bible, and we might remember that moment as a solemn oath or a commitment. Perhaps you've been sworn into office before. That's a solemn oath of commitment that you remember. But I want to tell you, my friends, that this kind of public confession, this kind of public profession is a significant one and the most significant one that you can make here on earth because you are confessing Jesus as Lord. In Romans 10, 9, and 10, Paul writes that it's those who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. It's that person who is saved. In verse 10, it says, For the heart, with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. People who make a true confession, who are unashamed of the gospel, The ones who are unashamedly professing Christ as Lord, those are the ones who are saved. I know we're, you know, at varying levels in terms of shyness and comfortability up front, but there should be a willingness that springs forth from the heart to say, Jesus is my Lord, and I'm not ashamed of that. That's a converted person. Well, sadly, what we find in Luke 19 and Matthew 21 is the triumphal entry Where people are publicly confessing Jesus, and by and large the masses here, and they're not necessarily saved people. I want to just review this text in Luke 19. We kind of went through it slowly last week. I want to take us through it really quickly this week, and then look over at Matthew 21. You have two kinds of worshipers who are present at the triumphal entry. And I want you to examine yourself this morning to say, which kind of worshiper am I? Am I a public professor who is saved, or am I, am I a public confessor who is false? Am I superficial? In verses 28 through 36, we introduced into true worshipers who were following the Messiah. The first true worshipers were the two disciples who were tasked to go and find a donkey for Jesus to ride in on. Remember, Jesus is moving into his public ministry here as a lamb of God, riding on a humble animal two miles down from, down from the Mount of Olives, and then back up again into the city of Jerusalem. He's a lamb going to the cross. He's in the outskirts of uh, the village of Bethany and Bethpage, and he sends two disciples there to retrieve an animal. Verse 28, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told, told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And he said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. These were two willing servants, recognizing that Jesus had a plan. It was a perfect plan. God was entirely in control of it. And just as they had, they had been told, they needed to say the Lord has need of this animal. And as soon as they did that, the two owners released the animals. Two owners were willing to sacrifice these, you know, their, their own property to the Lord and probably joined in with them in this event. Verse 32 and following shows this. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Here we have. Um, Probably the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles and a larger crowd of disciples who are joining them. And they are from the heart willingly sacrificing their own clothing so that the Lord would be set apart on this beast of burden. Jesus, again, not riding in as a, a king per se. Someone who would be lauded and celebrated on a war horse coming into the city. No, he was humble, seated on a donkey. Seated on the foal of a donkey, on cloaks, and people were throwing their coats and their cloaks and their garments onto the ground so that the colt would be set apart as it walked and marched Jesus into the city. Those are the true worshipers, and then that's contrasted with more superficial worship and praise. Verse 37 And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now these multitudes, again, I'm not saying that I can diagnose everyone's heart who was in the crowd. But these multitudes, as the text will show us, were not genuinely praising God. Instead, they were being used of God to proclaim something that was true. In fact, we know that six days later, this crowd was going to turn on Jesus. And the palm branches were going to turn into words and declarations to Jesus saying, crucify him. Hosannas turned into crucify him give us barabbas send this one to be slain because he deserves to die so their faith was not in general genuine in general their faith was superficial it was plastic it wasn't heart transformed faith it was just external have you ever been in that situation where you find that your, your worship is superficial, where you question whether or not you're genuinely saved. Well, that's what this crowd indeed was. They were not genuine. They were not real. Though they were spouting Psalm 18, 118, 26, songs that you would sing during Passover, it was all for hype. And then you see this more acutely on verse 39 and forty. These are the Pharisees. They are the scribes and the high priest in, in the crowd. And it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your followers. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here Jesus is very clearly saying, Look, the praise that's going on doesn't offend me because it's truth. It's real what they're saying. What they're saying is valid. It's authentic in terms of the truth of what they're saying. And even if they weren't saying it, the stones would cry out and say it because this event is of God. Again, the Pharisees, like the crowds in general, were not genuinely seeing Jesus for who he was. But Jesus didn't shut down the crowds because the truth that they were speaking was was the very truth about who Jesus was. And is. He is the son of David. He is God, very God. But though the multitudes were singing songs to the Lord and the Pharisees were trying to censor the Lord, Jerusalem becomes an object of grief for Jesus Christ. Look at verse 41. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it Because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus, as he sees the panoramic view of the beautiful city of Jerusalem, in his mind's eye, envisions what's going to happen a few decades later in AD seventy, when Rome will be a an instrument of judgment in the hand of God. And Titus, the Roman leader and general at that point, comes in and takes over Jerusalem and raises the city. And crushes it. It's actually very specific in the way that Jesus predicts and prophesies what's going to happen, where he says that there will be a barricade, verse 43, around you. Literally what Titus did is he built walls around the city and cut off the lines of communication and the lines of and the lines and the transit of food source back and forth in and out. And he did this during the summertime, June, July, and August, in the heat of the summer, he he suffocated the city of Jerusalem through that barricading effect where by September they were completely vulnerable. To being crushed by the Roman Empire. And that's exactly what happened. It says you will be torn down to the ground and your children within you. A horrible scene where Jesus is uncontrollably sobbing over it. Knowing that this is going to happen as judgment again it's judgment on superficial praise praise that was not real it was not authentic even though it was truthful what they were saying they didn't get it their eyes as you see in verse 42 were darkened they were they were they were covered in the judgment of God Jesus was hidden from their eyes and so This judgment tone is the transition into verses 45 through 48. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Let me ask you a question. You might be sitting here thinking, man, this is kind of a sad and sobering and sort of a bummer sermon for Palm Sunday. Why, why the, the downer on Palm Sunday? Well, the text is, is leading me to what I'm trying to say, and, and the points come from the text. And so there's a clear warning of judgment in this text not to be the marketer Christian, not to be a superficial Christian, not to be a Christian in name only. You have to be a Christian who's genuinely converted by the Holy Spirit to be a true worshiper assured for heaven. To be a true worshiper on Palm Sunday, you have to be genuinely saved. Okay, so where's the hope in the text then? Where are the true worshipers? Well, I want to show you. I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 48. But, in contrast to all of that judgment theme, but, they did not find anything. These are the the Pharisees that wanted to kill Jesus. They didn't find anything they could do. Why? For all the people were hanging on his words. Guess what? Not everybody yelled crucify him six days later. There were converts, there were disciples who recognized after Jesus rose from the dead what was really going on in their hearts. They came to life and they were already alive before Jesus died, but it came into full bloom understanding once Jesus rose from the dead. It's a narrow road that leads to heaven and eternity. The wide road leads to destruction. The masses will not believe. Even though they claim Christ, they will not be genuinely converted. But there are some, and there are some from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people who genuinely believe, who are genuinely converted. I want to show you a different version of this, another bit of hope. And I want to show you it from the same story, the same narrative, but with a few different details in Matthew 21. Matthew 21 gives another scene of hope, and it's out of the mouths of babes that we find it. Again, to get a running start, let me just talk through the triumphal entry, the triumphal approach and entry into Jerusalem. From Matthew 21, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, on the outskirts again, 2,000 yeah, feet up on the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, we've heard about them, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. So you have the mother donkey, and then you have the foal. Untie them, both of them, and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is Zechariah 9.9, 9, by the way. Saying the daughter to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd, now you have the, the broader crowd some believers and many who are not. Most of the crowds sp- spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. These are the palm branches waving at Jesus and laying them at the feet of Jesus, hoping that Jesus would be their king in that moment, overthrowing the Roman Empire. That's the scene. And the crowds, verse 9, that went before him and that followed him were shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest stop there hosanna means lord save us god save us son of david verse 10 and when he entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In other words, join the crowd, join the praise. We want this event, this overthrow to take place at this time. Again, look at Jesus' response of judgment in verse 12. A few more details, but the same story. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What is Jesus confronting here? He's saying what he taught in his parable simply this You can't worship Jesus and money, it's one or the other you worship either Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, or you worship things. You worship possessions. You can be dirt poor and worship money, by the way. (laughs) You can feel in your heart that you deserve more than you have, and you can live for that, and you can worship that. And What had happened is the very symbol of true worship, the temple where you should be worshiping with an open heart, a needy heart before the Lord saying, Lord, I give you my everything, that turned into a marketplace. It turned into Walmart. It turned into the place where things were being bought and sold for a profit because it's a nice place where people come. It's convenient. It's saying, I want worship my way. I want to be able to buy my worship. I want to be able to buy my feel-good marketing ministry and jesus went in that place and ripped it up he tore it up anybody that believes in a frail jesus doesn't understand the carpenter's son that took big massive tables and threw them over and cleaned the place out obviously under the energy and the empowerment of the holy spirit jesus being fully god and fully man but he didn't stop there he didn't just clear it out and then leave he stayed there to bring the kingdom of God. To bring a window into heaven, into that temple. Look at verse thir- um, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Stop there. So, what does Jesus do? He sets things right in the temple, and then he begins to reach out to people who are needy. He's not reaching out to people who were worshiping money, he's reaching out to people who were blind, who were lame, who were outcasts, who were people who might not be welcomed into a sacred place like a temple. He's gathering people to himself, creating a new kind of worship, worshiping Jesus, worshiping God, the true God. And he was healing people. And what was remarkable is that the religious leaders, the scribes, the chief priest, who would have varying views of religion and how god was supposed to be worshiped they were actually crosswise with each other but in this event they they bond and galvanize together against jesus and become indignant now what they're not denying with their statement of christ is they're not denying that wonderful things were happening these miracles were undeniably happening the lame were walking. People were being healed, the blind were seeing. You could not dispute the miracle. And yet they, in their ignorance and in their arrogance and in their hard-heartedness, still become religiously critical of Jesus and the power of God. Can you believe that? It's ironic. I mean, here they had just, by tacit endorsement, had created a marketing religion which was completely against God and the gospel, and then the true Christ comes in the room, clears it out, makes things right, makes a setting for the power of God to be on display, displays the power of God, and then you have Pharisees criticizing Jesus. That's superficiality versus genuine spirituality. Genuine heart change from the gospel is different than pharisaical external religion that's what's on display in these narratives one or the other well again where's the hope where's where's true salvation where's where do i fit in in this text why why the doomsday sermon well there's always gospel light gospel hope in the text look again you have some children verse 15 who are crying out in the temple saying hosanna to the son of David what were they saying these probably boys in the temple probably 12 year olds who are there for bar mitzvah during the Passover could have been boys and girls could have been a varying age um, group because Jesus had kind of changed the rules in the moment and it was a healing service but perhaps uh, it's it's best to take this as twelve year old boys in the room they're the bold ones they're like the children in the baptistry they're the ones who are just saying, "Look I, you know I, I don't know enough to be afraid I, I don't know enough to be to feel criticized or judged in my speech, so I'm just going to get up and proclaim Jesus right now uh, they're the ones in a more consolidated um, more more um, simple, shrunken down environment in a temple, more isolated environment. They're the ones who are speaking boldly. This one here. I mean, they're not. They're not kind of blending in with the crowd and waving branches and and going along with the hype like at a stadium arena. No, they're they're in in the church house, saying that's Jesus. These are wonderful things that are happening. That's the Son of David. They're the ones that remembered what their parents did the day before in the crowds and they're imitating what they said but they're imitating what they said from a genuine heart of belief hosanna to the son of david god saves through that one that one is god that one is the messiah that's what these 12 year old boys or these children were doing genuine public profession of faith where the adults perhaps shrunk back from saying what was true when they saw Jesus heal people in the marketplace or on the streets or on the Mount of Olives when they heard the teaching of Jesus. They weren't outrightly, boldly laying their lives on the line, but these children were, because the children got it. Complete, completely uninhibited worship to the Lord. By contrast, look at what the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priest doing what did they say they were indignant verse 16 and they said to him jesus they're trying to get jesus to catch on to what's going on do you hear what they what these are saying and jesus said to them yes have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise the pharisees were trying to intimate For Jesus, how Jesus should be feeling in this moment. The Pharisees are trying to crop up self doubt in Jesus' heart. I mean, yeah, Jesus is being used as perhaps a a mighty prophet and miracle ministry is going on, but do you realize what these children are saying? Do you realize how silly they are acting right now? How foolish these kids are for proclaiming you as the true and genuine Messiah? Do you realize that they are attributing to you that you are God? They want Jesus to go, huh, yeah, I can't believe that. They want Jesus to, to side with them in religion instead of, What Jesus could not deny, which is that Jesus was truly the Messiah. Jesus very much welcomed, in fact, this kind of praise and in no way shut it down. He didn't shut it down when the crowds did it superficially. And surely Jesus was not going to shut down this kind of heartfelt, regenerated, spirit-empowered praise through the mouths of babes. This is a quote that Jesus makes from Psalm 8, verse 2, by the way. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies. This is talking about children in general. Infants are children here. And in the original language, it means children. Could be up to 12 years old. But babies here is the word nursing babies or sucklings. These could be infants down to 3 years old. So you you have this sense in which Jesus is saying, look, Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, really, you're you're not going to remember Psalm 8, verse 2 in this moment. I mean, he's criticizing their hard-heartedness, and he knows that these religious leaders would know Psalm 8, verse 2, one of the most popular verses from the Old Testament Psalter. He's saying, don't you remember this? He's sort of indicting them. Why aren't you looking at what's happening through the eyes of Scripture? Don't you see that this is fulfilling that? How are you missing this? That's what Jesus is doing. And he uses here the Greek version of the Old Testament when he quotes this verse. Speaking of the infants and nursing babies, he says, You have prepared praise. The New American Standard puts it this way. You have perfected praise in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what the psalmist is doing is he's contrasting babies and how they worship the Lord genuinely and in a genuine spirit versus God's enemies. And he literally, in the, in the Hebrew, it says that God's strength is established through this kind of worship. And the Greek version of the Old Testament gets it right, where literally the kind of praise that comes through children is called perfected praise or prepared praise. It's the Greek word katartidzo. That's the word that's used for mending nets. It's the mending word. It's like when a broken bone is mended back together and it recalcifies stronger than it was before it means that something is whole that something is complete that something is genuine through and through and what jesus is commending here is he's saying god's strength is on display because you have whole praise here it's not superficial praise this is the praise that has genuine integrity this is the praise from believers It's prepared praise. It's prepared by God. God has illumined these children's eyes by the Holy Spirit to see the true Messiah. These children truly see Jesus for who he is. Unlike the religious leaders and the masses who were darkened in their understanding and headed for judgment. Let's conclude in this way. With three ideas three things that are proven here by this master stroke of Jesus, where he quotes Psalm 8, verse 2. Number one, three things are going on. Number one, the Pharisees and their religious confrontation, that's shut down with the Word of God. Jesus uses the Bible to stifle the religious leaders and their desire to cause skepticism in the moment. That's all shut down. Jesus just... Takes the word of God and shuts down the cynicism right there. Confronts it. Number two. And by the way, the religious leaders, I mean, they're still resolute. They might be stifled for a moment, but they're still resolute to kill Jesus because Jesus is going to cramp their style. Jesus is going to take the masses away from their power play. But number two. Jesus quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 on behalf of these children To make clear that Jesus is saying that he is God. The deity of Christ is affirmed in this passage. You say, well, how how is that? Well, first of all, the word Hosanna means God save us. And what the children are saying in verse 15 is Hosanna or God save us. And that is attributed to whom? Hosanna, look at this, to the son of David. In other words, the children were saying Jesus is the Messiah who is God, and that is the son of David. And Jesus is taking nothing away from what the children are saying. He is the son of David, and so he is the second member of the Trinity, God, very God. He's God. Jesus was applying Psalm 8-2 to himself. And then thirdly, and this is perhaps the most important point for you to pay attention to and to listen to, maybe this is the one thing out of all that I've said that you should remember and concentrate on right now, and that is Jesus is affirming that the humble, the people who are willing to be like children are the ones who receive the kingdom of God. The arrogant The religious, the superficial, the people who are trying to earn their way to heaven, the people who are trying to be good enough, the people who are trying to trust in the grace of Christ but also their religious duties, the people who are trying to tell themselves that the good in their life outweighs the bad, those people are not headed for heaven. Jesus used children as an example of the innocence of saving faith. Think about it. When Jesus, in Matthew 19, a few chapters earlier, um, called the children to himself, remember he rebuked the disciples, said, No, let the children come to me. And he put his hands on them and blessed them and said, The kingdom of God is for such as these. You know what Jesus was doing? He was affirming These children as those who would go into the kingdom, but he was also showing an example of what saving faith truly looks like. Saving faith is where you say, I can't save myself. All I can do is crawl up into the lap of Jesus and say, save me. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is not a religious work. It is a manifestation of what God does in the heart of a person where they realize, I can't save myself. It's the simplicity of the gospel that can be spoken from a nine-year-old in the waters of baptism. It's the simplicity of saving faith where all of religion is cleared away. Money-changing tables are thrown over. Everything's cleared out, and the kingdom of heaven is on display. It looks wonderful, and you say, that's the Messiah. Save me. Hosanna. Lord, save me. That's saving faith. In Matthew 18, a couple chapters back, Jesus is portrayed as putting a child on his lap. Look back there, just a few chapters. Matthew 18, we'll end here. Verse 1, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is religious speak. This is how do I get into heaven through works? Who's the greatest? Who's who's the furthest out in front here? Verse 2, this is how Jesus corrected that wrong thinking. He said, I don't know if you're like me, but I just want to get into the kingdom of heaven. I don't care about being greatest. I don't want to graduate magna or summa cum laude. I just want to be in heaven at all. And the only way that you can go into heaven is by having the faith of a child where you relinquish any sort of works or rights or entitlements and you say, Lord, save me because you're the only one that can. Do you have that kind of saving faith? If not, ask the Lord to change your heart at this time. Ask God to draw you into his kingdom, and he promises that he will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this testimony service. We thank you, God, that this is um, your work of saving grace that we find in the gospel. We thank you that that manifestation of your saving grace was found in the waters of baptism. We thank you for all those children of God who have come forth to publicly make a confession of their saving faith, the saving faith that you can only generate in the heart. We thank you for this, and Lord, we pray that we would be challenged to relinquish any kind of religious credits that we think we're building. Let us fall into your arms of saving grace Not only at salvation, but throughout all of our Christian walk in life. Let us persevere only because you're working and strengthening our hearts to do that. We love you, God. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for our church. We thank you, Lord, that we can have a supper together now, some fellowship. Lord, bless the food to our bodies. Thank you for all that have prepared it. and Lord, let this be genuine worship to you as we enjoy one another. The glory of Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well,